So I did a lot of yelling this weekend. And I didn't think that it had bothered me that much, but I was wrong. That hurt. And that's not a hard song to sing either. So this weekend I had an awesome experience. I got to go and speak at a youth retreat for some teenagers that I walked into their life at probably one of the most inopportune times for somebody coming in trying to be the voice of reason and the voice of, of trust in the church. Um, it was a, a tough time of, of turnover in their youth ministry, and I was the guy that got to go in and sort everything out and sweep up the ashes and move forward. And this weekend when I got to the retreat, I was, I was excited to see these kids because they have um, they've left an impact on my life, and they were, they were around at, at, the own, at my own tough time and, and seasons of, of tough, you know, just tough living. So I was excited to see them again, but when I uh, last saw them, they were all like 6th and 7th and 8th graders, and it had been a few years. Um, so when I get there this weekend, you know, they're all juniors and, and seniors, and they're driving, and that is just terrifying in and of itself. But I get to the retreat, and I'm the speaker, and this is the first youth event that I've ever gone to where I was not the person in charge or the person that would get blamed for something. And that is a freeing feeling. But as the retreat kicked off, I noticed very quickly that it wasn't an adult that got up and got things organized. It was one of those students. And when it was time to split up into their small groups, I realized that it was one of the students that had split them up. And when they went to their small groups, I realized that all the adults were in the kitchen, and it was the students leading the small groups. And then I got time for worship, and I realized that I was not the one with the guitar leading worship. And it wasn't one of the other adults with the guitar leading worship, it was one of the students with a ukulele. I don't know why people love the ukulele. It's a cheap impression of a guitar. But they did a good job. And even when the music wasn't perfect, and even when they sang off key, they still worshipped, and they still had fun. And they still continued to do what they knew they were supposed to be doing, and they did it with joy and with excitement. And then throughout the day, as they did their activities, I noticed that it was the students that were leading one another. That it was the students that were talking with one another and sharing uh, their own faith with one another. And last night, uh, we did communion. And they have this tradition where every year the seniors sit in this circle. And everybody goes around and tells them, you know, the impact that they made in their life. Um, and from the six seniors, what I saw from them as 6th, 7th, and 8th graders to who they had become as, as people graduating high school, I saw one person um, who was that quiet person that always in the background never really said much, but all 50-something of these students said, you have this integrity about you. I mean, these are 7th grade kids saying this about this dude, saying, you have this integrity about you that everybody knows where you stand, and you're like super loyal. And you've earned my respect for that. And then the next one 
somebody was like, you know, you're like the mom of the youth group. When we walk in, you give us a hug, and, and we're so excited to see you, and you make every bad day just feel amazing and wonderful, and I love it. And then the next one was, you are the biggest ball of joy ever. And I actually told her, I said, you know, I have actually used you in sermons before as the example of what I think God's joy is supposed to be. I don't know if this kid has ever had a bad day. I don't know if they know how to have a bad day because they're always full of joy and they're always giving that to somebody else. And then the next one, everybody said that when we stepped into this room for the very first time, you made it feel as though we had been here for years. You made us yours and we were part of your community. And then the last one, dude started crying. He said, when I was at the lowest point of my life, you were there for me. And he said, you'll never understand the impact that you had on my life. He's saying this about a kid graduating high school. And everybody's like, you speak words of wisdom all the time. When, when, we, when we have a question, we know that we can go to you just like we can uh, Chris, who is their youth pastor, or anything else. They say, we can go to you. And you always know what to say to point us back to God. These are six teenagers. And this is the testimony that other kids in their youth group have said about them. Now, I'll tell you the usual story that one student says about another is, we were riding in the church van one time, and all of a sudden there's this weird smell, and we looked over, and dude's over there just laughing. That's usually the stories that you get, but that's, nobody said a story like this. And I was blown away that these kids who I remembered as sixth and seventh graders, who I, I thought then were pretty cool kids, had grown up to be these amazing and these wonderful people. And how they had set a foundation and a tone for who the rest of the kids in that youth group were inevitably going to grow up to be and the example that they were going to have. And it made me think back into my own youth experience uh, to one of the most influential people in my life. Uh, his guy's name was Mark Day. Mark Day was the biggest goon you would ever meet. He was always joking around. He was always funny. Like, you couldn't upset the dude, you couldn't make him mad, but dude lived for Jesus every single day of his life. As a teenager, 14, 15 years old, you could tell that this dude walked with Jesus, and everybody in the youth group loved Mark. Mark got us all into paintball. Mark taught us all how to sneak out of cabins at church camp, all the while not being able to get in trouble because you, you really didn't do anything wrong, and you're such a likable person that when they find you, they just kind of laugh and go, go back to bed. He taught us how to be godly people while he was still a teenager. And I remember one of the most influential things that Mark ever did. Um, so he got up one night and he gave his testimony in youth. And he said, you know, guys, I got a truck this week. So Mark's family uh, were like the Dave Ramsey poster children. Matter of fact, Dave Ramsey could probably learn from them. Like, they were amazing people in the way that they handled themselves and the way that they stewarded all the things that God had given them. But he said, you know, I, I was very specific on what kind of truck I wanted. I knew what color I wanted in it, and I knew, you know, exactly what I was looking for, and so I just prayed for it. And, and I was okay borrowing a car from mom or dad, or I was okay getting a ride until I got that truck. And he said, y'all, I got that truck this week. And he said, I love it. I love it to death. And you go outside, and it's not anything special. It's just a truck. But it was the coolest truck in the world when I was 13 years old. And Mark drove it for forever. And I remembered then that that is how we were to pray. We were to pray specifically knowing that God has a plan for us and that God has our steps lined out. And if we will trust God and follow God, then God will lead us that way, even if it's something as simple and as easy as a truck. 
And then later on in life, when I was already in ministry and I had kids, um, I learned again from Mark something. He pulled up at the church one day. He, he worked at a church for a while. We always thought he'd go into ministry, but he, he did for a while. But Mark understood that life is ministry and that he was a, a minister no matter where he was. And one day he pulls up in this old, like, 1987, like, Buick Delta 88 or whatever it was. I said, Mark, what happened to your truck? He said, oh, somebody needed it, so I gave it to him. I said, you gave him your truck? First off, that was the truck he prayed for. Second, what kind of guy gives their truck away? You don't do that. But he said, yeah, it's not an extension of my personality. And y'all, I curled in on myself and I must died. Because <laughs> my truck is very much a, an extension <laughs> of my personality. Um, <laughs> and, oh, it's convicting. But I learned from then again, Mark knew where joy was in life. Mark understood what life in Jesus was to be about. And he didn't let anything pull him away from that. And those kids this weekend were, were the example of Mark to their youth group. And I just thought, man, how, how awesome of an example will these kids have to grow up with? So in John's Gospel, in chapter 7, last week we talked about how Jesus' brothers were going to this Jewish festival and they were going to um, make the world known that they were the brothers of Jesus. And they said, Jesus, you know, you need to make yourself popular. If you've got this message to save the world, you need to go. In reality, Jesus knew they were going, look, dude, people like you, people see you. You kind of made the front page last week. We need to be a part of that. Come on. And we need you to dust off on us a little bit. Uh, but Jesus said, I'm not going. He, he said, you go, your time is now, but it's not yet my time. And we know when Jesus said that, his words of wisdom um, usually move beyond what is on the page to something deeper. He wasn't saying that it's literally not 515, it's not time for me to leave yet. But he was saying that the reasons you're going are not the reasons that I'm here. And so this week, uh, we see that Jesus does something that... Um, we would think would be uncharacteristic for Jesus, but in reality, it's exactly who Jesus is. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to John 7. We're going to start reading in verse 10, and I'm going to go all the way through to verse 24. That is 14 verses of the Word of God for your ears this morning. Amen. That is great. I'm going to start leading with that, because sometimes, like, sometimes people are like, you read too much. I'm like, that's okay. At least I can read. So, <laughs> verse 10. But after his brothers left for the festival, Jesus also went. Though he went secretly, staying out of public view. The Jewish leaders tried to find him at the festival and kept asking if anyone had seen him. There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds and some argued that he's a good man, but others said he's nothing but a fraud who deceives the people. But no one had the courage to speak favorably about him in public for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. And then midway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple and he began to teach. The people were surprised when they heard him, and they said, How does he know so much when he hasn't even been trained, they asked. So Jesus told them, My message is not my own. Matter of fact, it comes from God who sent me. And anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. For those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves, but a person who speaks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth and not lies. Moses gave you the law, but none of you obey it. In fact, you were trying to kill me. The crowd replied, you are demon-possessed. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus replied, I did one miracle on the Sabbath, and you were amazed. But you work on the Sabbath too. When you obey Moses' laws of circumcision, actually this tradition of circumcision began when the patriarchs long before the law of Moses began. 
For if it is the correct time for circumcising your son and it falls on the Sabbath, you go ahead and do it so as not to break the law of Moses. So why should you be angry with me for healing a man on the Sabbath? Look beneath the surface so that you can judge correctly. So Jesus was the first psychologist that ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus could dial us in, could call us out, and could lay it out in still a way that only a psychologist can where nobody still understands what was just said. You ever been to a psychologist or heard one speak? Things say the most amazing explanation in the world, and you're just going, okay, I recognize like three words in that whole sentence. So Jesus, after his brothers went to the festival, Jesus goes anyways. I don't know about you, but we would call that lying in my world. When Jesus tells somebody, I'm not going to do that, and then he does it anyways. But Jesus wasn't lying. I think Jesus had intentions of going to the festival all the time, because if you remember, Jesus was Jewish. This was a festival that he grew up attending But unlike the people at the festival, Jesus understood who it was about. It was not the great Israeli Woodstock of the day where people went and had an excuse to get together and street vendors knew that this was the time to mop up. But he knew that all of this was put in place to worship God and he said that is all that life is to be about. And very first in verse 10, I I notice that when it says that Jesus went to the festival, but he did so secretly, staying out of the public view, I realized that John is talking to whoever reads this gospel, and he is saying that if your heart is not in the right place, understand that that does not mean that Jesus is not doing his thing still. Remember last week, his brothers weren't in the right place. They weren't going with the right motivations and the right intentions. So it would come to see as though Jesus was not going to go and be Jesus. But unbeknownst to his brothers, Jesus still went. And for me, that spoke volumes. And this weekend, I realized that even if I had not been at that retreat and seen God move and felt God's spirit setting on those students and in the midst of that circle, Jesus would still be doing his thing. And that is something that you and I as Christians, and that is something that we as people trying to discover the answer to life and the secret to all the mysteries that the world holds, uh, we need to understand That God is always moving. That Jesus is always moving. And if we don't pay attention, we're going to miss out. Jesus' brothers thought that they were having a good time. Thought that they were living it up. Thought that everything was amazing and awesome as it always had been. But yet they were missing the greatest part of the story. They were missing the greatest thing about that festival is that the God that they were there to give thanks for, for the provisions while they were wandering in the wilderness, had sent the provision that would redeem them for eternity from death. So while they were looking back on years where they were captive to an area unknown and waiting for a promise to happen Jesus had been standing in their midst of the promise that was said to come. So as people wanting to know what the purpose of life is, John is is telling us right here 
that Jesus is always up to something. And that if you are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, the only way that you are going to find life, the only way that you are going to be happy, and that you are going to be fulfilled within who you are and to be content, is to be looking for Jesus Christ in all things. Because Jesus is always moving and Jesus is always doing his thing. And then the Jewish later, leaders tried to find him because they, they wanted to see him. and They wanted to confront him and, and take this man who had been preaching against the message that they're throwing out. That, you know, you got to do this. And if you're God's people, you do this. If you don't do this, then you're actually not up to snuff and you're not good enough for us. They wanted to, to find this man and sort him out who was telling them that, you know, God is searching for you. God is waiting for you. God is here for you. That didn't fly because it took away their authority and their power. But then you'll notice the other people at the festival who thought well of Jesus said that they didn't have the courage to speak because they were afraid of the repercussions. You know, there's that age-old question of, if somebody asked you if you were willing to die for your faith, what would you say? When we sit here in, in the presence of one another and thankful for concealed carry now, it's easy for us to say, oh, I wouldn't deny my faith, that'd be good. I'm be honest with you, I hope to goodness that I would be able to say the right thing in that situation because I've looked down the barrel of a gun and you don't really know what you're going to say if you can even speak. And that's a game changer. So these people aren't very far off from where you and I are. When approached with a differing attitude, they didn't want to say anything. But the reality of it is, is that's where we live every single day. We live in the midst of a world that tells us that if you want to believe in Jesus, that's fine. That's an option that you have. But keep it to yourself. That Christianity works for those crazy people who want to live by a bunch of rules. But for the rest of the real world who actually knows things and actually understands what life is. You know, that's just a bunch of silliness. And for some reason we allow that to affect who we are. Not just necessarily in our ability to openly talk about our faith. But sometimes we even want to keep it hidden in the way we present ourselves. You know, for the longest time, I didn't want people to know that I was a pastor. Not because I was afraid they would beat me up or throw rocks at me, but because I knew the moment that they found out I was a pastor, conversation would be done. They don't want to talk to me anymore because, oh, that's the pastor. He's secretly judging us. No, I judged you a long time before you even walked in the door. It's called situational awareness. But I'm still sitting here talking with you. But John is telling the reader of his gospel, he's telling these young disciples who are, are seeking out to live their new life that you're going to be persecuted if you follow the path that Jesus Christ says. Not just actively from people, but from lifestyles, from culture. That if you follow Jesus Christ as a disciple, the world is going to persecute you. The world is not marketing to you or to the priorities that God has said are to be instilled in you. The world does not tell you that success in life is the same thing that Jesus Christ says it is. The world says go to the festival, see the people, have friends, rub elbows, let people know your connections. 
And that will earn you some um, street cred or whatever you want to call it. But Jesus says, if you're my disciple, sometimes you've got to go in the background. Sometimes you have to be willing to step in a situation understanding that you're not going to be noticed. That people aren't going to affirm you or approve who you are. But when you are following God, and when you are chasing after God, God is going to do something amazing when you believe what He tells you. So this weekend with these students, what I thought was really neat is that of the six students up there, Two of them, some of the kids, like, you know, I, it took me like three years to remember your name because you're so quiet. But I always knew that you were the kid that was setting up stuff. I always knew that you were the kid picking up the Bibles after small groups. You were always the guy at the back of the van putting our, our bags on when we got ready to go on a trip. They didn't even know the guy's name, but they said that they respected him. He took a background approach of serving other people because he understood the importance of people and the importance of the mission that he was tasked with. You see, that is what a disciple of Jesus Christ is, is understanding that sometimes serving other people is throwing bags in a van. Sometimes being a disciple is making chili dogs on a Wednesday night. Sometimes a disciple is understanding that it's not about us, but it's about Jesus. Imagine the impact that Jesus' brothers could have made at that festival if they had been intent on going to share about their brother and what their brother had come to do. Imagine what would have happened at that festival if each one of Jesus' brothers would have approached somebody and said, Hey, you know, we're here to worship God for what he did for us in the desert. But let me tell you about what he's doing for you right now. Let me tell you about who is walking among us right now and what he came to accomplish. Imagine what the church would look like if that is the way that we lived our life. If that is the understanding, 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 God, of what being a disciple was to make much of Jesus to make much of his name when it leaves our mouth that when we say it people are like tell me more that when people see us acting out on the street and they don't even know who we are they're like there's something different about that person I want to know what it is when people hear that oh they go to first Methodist I want to see what's up I want to see what's going on there I want to know what's up and then you can go Come with me, and I will show you. And I will walk with you, and I will make you part of my community. And I will allow the things that Jesus is doing in my life to become part of what he is doing in your life. And I will share with you the things that Jesus has taught me, and together we're going to learn about this Jesus, this one who came and who died. And in doing so, took our sin and made us free from being captives to sin. And, and changed our future from where death was waiting for us. To where life for all eternity was what was going to be waiting. Imagine 
if that is how we follow Jesus, to where when we went out, we didn't care if people saw us, all we cared about was people seeing Jesus. And we knew that we could be the avenue and the conduit by which the face of Christ was discovered in somebody. You see, that is the good thing about being together in this place. I don't know about you, but I'm a bad Christian on my best days. I doubt. I fail. I'm lazy. I shared with you my prayer life story. I have a prayer bench in my office. It's not because I'm an astute prayer person. It's because I want to be. One of the greatest stories I'd ever heard, and I've shared this with you before, but you're going to hear it again because I'm the one talking. So a group of students one time went on a tour of the foundry where John Wesley established the Methodist movement in England. And at the end of the tour, they were getting ready to go back outside, and the teacher noticed that one of the students was missing. She said, where's little Billy at? And one of the kids said, I saw him upstairs a little bit ago in the bedroom area, but I don't, I don't know where he's at. So the teacher went and looked and saw little Billy uh, kneeling there beside the bed. And he was repeating the words that the tour guide had said earlier about John Wesley's prayer being, God, I pray that you would start a revival in this land, and if you would do so, if you would allow me to be a part of it, that would be amazing. And that was little Billy on his knees in the divots that John Wesley had wore in the floor beside his bed where every day he would spend his time in prayer, praying that same prayer, Dear God, please start a revival in this land, and if you would let me be a part of it, that would be awesome. And that dude, little Billy, grew up to be the, the big Billy, Billy Graham. And that's where his ministry started. That moment there in prayer. Understanding that life was not about him. That his success with his days on earth was not about what he was going to accomplish. But knowing what God could accomplish if people were being willing to be used. And so we come together here in this community not only to learn, not only to receive but I pray very heavily and very hopefully to be used. And I pray that our prayer is not, dear God, please let Matt's music be good this weekend, because if that is your prayer, God is probably going to tell you no. <laughs> and I pray that when you come to church, your prayer is not, dear God, please let it be a quick service, because I've had a crappy week and I just want to get home. Because when we do that, it makes it about us, and God's not able to be when it's not about us. And Jesus doesn't follow us when we go places and it's not about God. But I pray, and this has been my prayer for a while, that when you come into this place, your number one prayer is, God, I pray that this morning would be a revival. Maybe in my life, because life has been really crappy lately. But God, just in general, because you're good and you're worth it and we want it. And then you pray, and God, if you would let me be a part of it, that would be so awesome. But not the part of it is the person that sits up in the box stand and watches. But the person that's down on the stage pulling the lines and opening the curtains and pushing the nervous child out. That is the prayer that we are to have as disciples. That's why John wrote his gospel. Because he didn't want people to just be followers of Jesus who had a head knowledge and did absolutely nothing with it. That is the most dangerous place we can be as a Christian. We learn to be content with the things that we know, but yet we never put it into practice to allow the Holy Spirit to work in somebody else. So my challenge for you is this. 
We're beginning an Advent study in a few weeks called Reset. We're in the season of Thanksgiving. New Year's is going to come up where we begin a new year. So start right now. Developing within you a new prayer. And mean it. Don't just say it because I said to say it and I'm a cool guy. But maybe pray that prayer. God, I pray that you would start a revival. And God, if you would let me be a part of it, that would be really awesome. And that's it. That's it. That's all the prayer takes. Imagine what the world would look like if Jesus' brothers had caught that. Imagine what Wynn, Arkansas would look like if we could catch that.